Hello and welcome to Verge ESP, a podcast about art and science on The Verge. My name is Emily Yoshida. I'm the entertainment editor on The Verge. I'm Liz Lopato. I'm the science editor on The Verge. And, uh, Liz has an interview coming up with uh, a, a researcher who's been doing some interesting work about the effect of music on the brain. Have you ever wondered why music feels good? I have. I wonder that Yeah, a lot, I've always wondered... <laughs> I actually always want to know about why certain music, like, so music feels good, and it's like, yes, we like music, and and we like our favorite songs, but when there's actually what feels like an involuntary physiological response to music, I'm always very interested in that. Like, when you get goosebumps from a song that you're hearing for the first time, it's like, how does that happen? How does that work? Yeah. So, that'll be cool. we Um, we have a bunch of other stuff for you, too. Yeah, yeah. So what's been going on? Uh, what's been going on in science this week, Liz? Uh, well, there was a little bit of a debacle um, at the United Launch Alliance. Now they're one of the big, um, biggest launchers for the Navy, right? So when the Navy is putting satellites in space, ULA is is doing a lot of that work. Um, and so one of their executives, uh, the vice president for engineering, guy named Brett Toby, uh, made a series of comments at the University of Colorado. Um, and I'm just gonna I'm just gonna give them to you straight. Uh, <laughs> uh, so so the back the, the backstory here is that they're they're getting con- they're in contract to get engines uh, from two different companies, Blue Origin and Iraqi Jet Aerodyne. Um, but they haven't decided which one is the final engine. And so he says, compare it to have two having two fiancés, two possible brides. Blue Origin is a super rich girl, <laughs> and then there's this poor girl over there, Aerojet Rocket Day. Uh... But we have to continue to go to planned rehearsal dinners, buy cakes, and all the rest with both. So if you didn't know this already, um, only 11.3 of aerospace engineers employed in 2015 are women. Uh... So there are a lot of ways in which this is bad. Like you don't want to be disparaging your business partners, particularly when um, you are carrying satellites for the government. Because uh, in addition to the the blowback around the sexist nature of the remarks, um, John McCain this morning was demanding some kind of explanation. (laughs) Right. So... (laughs) Uh, so there, the, this this executive has now resigned. Um, but but you know there's there's really a sense that like uh, the competition between ULA and SpaceX, which is their biggest competitor, is really really heating up. And uh, yeah, I I I just am flabbergasted a little that somebody thought that was an ap- appropriate thing to say in a public forum. But you know, wonders will never cease. The world is a rich tapestry. It's all really, that. I, I think it's interesting that this stuff happens. With, it is happening with increasing frequency, it feels like, within the science community, because I feel like even within entertainment, where people put their feet in their mouths all the time, I think there's a little a little more awareness of the fact that, like, everything is public now, and this will be found by people who have a right to be upset about it, and will voice that feeling, Uh that that seems to be there, there seems to be more of a mechanism in place to kind of like, I don't know, I guess in the form of like PR flax. But I, it's interesting. It feels like it feels like science in a lot of ways, or like a lot of these like male professionals in science don't have that level of awareness. I wonder if it's just from not like being as plugged into the media machine or something. I have no idea. Well, that's part of it. But science media is changing a little, too. Like, the way that scientists think that science journalism should work is that we just deliver their results to a a grateful public. Mm -hmm. 
But it turns out um, a shocking number of us happen to be female. Right. And so when you say stuff like this, we'll report on it, you know. And if you leave women out of the room, we'll report on it. And 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 I think that seems to be baffling them because they expect us to be cheerleaders rather than journalists. So I think that's a big part of it too. That they don't, they think that they're going to be covered by like the you know. Space Boosters fan club who's going to like for their benefit like ignore some of these remarks and might have done you know 10 years ago but yeah. it's not what it used to be man it's changing man well speaking of people who uh, put their feet in their mouth um, but you know maybe maybe sometimes for the better I don't know uh, <laughs> uh, Kanye West we've talked about Kanye West's album The Life of Pablo a little, a little on, uh, on this podcast uh, an interesting thing happened yesterday. Uh, we, the Life of Pablo is currently only available on Tidal to stream. They were going to have downloads, and then that didn't really work out. Now they've kind of abandoned that. So the only way you can listen to this album is legally is to have Tidal, the streaming program or the streaming streaming app, and uh, and listen to it there. So a lot of people naturally got Tidal when that happened. Um, I don't know if you did, Liz. Uh, I just re-got title, uh, which I feel I was really holding out about it. I didn't want to because I I did experience like do a little bit of uh, titling when it first came out. I just I, I just thought it was a bad product. I didn't want to use it, especially when I like already had Spotify and a million other apps. But, you know, reluctantly, mostly, mostly for Kanye, I got title again. But title is now extending the free trial that it offered to all those people who uh, who got it when uh, Life of Pablo came out for another, uh, I feel like 15 days or no, 30 days, another 30 days because he is, you know, making changes to the album that it, that are going to exist on the streaming platform. And uh, so just to let you have the full experience of this album, which like refuses still to be a fixed traditional album. What's the end game for this album? Does he just get to continue tinkering it with, for the, with it for the next 50 years? Or is there a point at which he decides it's done? Or do yeah. you think, that, I, I, you know what I mean? Like, I, I'm very curious to see how he winds this down because we've sort of gotten used to the idea that, oh, a new version of whatever song is going to be available and it's going to sound slightly different. Yeah. Um, but at some point, you do want to do new art, you know? Right. I mean, I think it would be interesting if it's like, it gets kind of, you know, there are sort of iterations and changes. It's almost like a like an operating system or like any other thing where there are different versions of it. And then it kind of rests on one that's sort of the one that we have for a few years. And then I love the idea of like five years from now, there's like another change to it. Like after he's already released another album, there's like a new update <laughs> to Life of Pablo. I mean, I am personally fascinated by this and how this entire thing has played out i i think it's unlike anything we've ever seen before i i don't really know yet how it benefits the art like i feel like that's going to be something we're going to have to have a little hindsight on but i mean you think about ways in which and i this is fresh in my mind because i've seen like several documentaries here at south by southwest that kind of address this but like how much hip-hop did change the rules of like what could be like what was an instrument and how music was built and recorded and all of that like complete how completely new and foreign it felt at the time like when it first started coming out in the early 80s um and this feels like another version of that like we're we're so we've taken for granted for so long that an album is this one fixed thing it's like maybe it's not maybe it's like a website (laughs) maybe an album is more like a website that you can update i don't 
I don't know. Um, so I I uh, will enjoy. I don't have a free trial on on title anymore, so I do not benefit from this. But um, it's going to be interesting to see where it goes. Well, speaking of changes, and I'm just going to go through this one pretty briefly. Um, as you may you may remember Blackfish, which came out in 2013. Mm-hmm. It was a documentary about um, the orcas at SeaWorld, uh, focusing on uh, Tilikum. Is that right? Yeah, I, it's a north it's a northwestern Native American name, and so I know how to pronounce it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Um, but so, you know, uh, you may remember that this orca killed its trainer um, in 2010. Yeah. And then a couple of years later, Blackfish came out. It was essentially just about Tilcom, um and the orca's captivity and how that sort of increases aggression. So anyway, SeaWorld has announced um, on today. Today is Thursday. Uh, we're recording on Thursday. Um, that it's going to stop breeding captive orcas, um, which we all call killer whales. I hate the name killer whale. I, I feel like, I don't know. I was always very aware of like the difference between calling them orcas and killer whales when I was a kid because I loved them when I was a kid. So I don't know. Um, I, yeah, I don't have strong feelings about the name either way. Uh, but yeah, so, so they're going to they're gonna replace those, those shows um, with what they're calling more natural orca encounters. Um, and... <laughs> <laughs> right. I don't know what go, that means. Um, but So they're saying this is the last generation of orcas that they're going to have in their care. Um, and then after that, they're going to think about ways to provide visitors with different experiences at their parks. So uh, I think, you know, um, if you haven't watched Blackfish yet, uh, that it, it, the, you could argue that that is a movie that actually did a thing. That, oh, for sure. That, uh, you know, that affected something in a very profound way. So just to sort of follow up when you talk about the benefits of hindsight, I think this is yeah. one of those places where... No, I remember Lauren wrote a little while ago about a documentary, ended up being nominated for an Oscar, did not win, um, uh, that I'm complete, racing, racing Extinction, uh, that was kind of about, you know, how many species of, are going extinct recently, and she didn't. She did an interesting essay. It's worth, worth looking back on because she did bring up Blackfish and the fact that, like, that's a really good, you know, we think of all these eco docs as things where people go see them, they get upset, they tweet about them, um, and then uh, nothing happens. But that's a really good example of something happening from the documentary. Yeah, I mean, part of it had to do with a legal dispute between SeaWorld and the California Coastal Commission, which is a regulatory body for the state. Mm-hmm. Um, but essentially, they approved a plan to expand the orca enclosure at the San Diego Park, but only if the company ended all orca breeding. So it was sort of a combo punch there. Huh. Uh, but yeah, so so they're, you know, that's the end of their legal dispute. <laughs> they're not yeah. going to breed orcas anymore. I mean, you know, they could just like put up a gate and like a fence around a part of the beach and be like, this is SeaWorld. You're at the ocean now. This is the theme park. <laughs> that seems like a, that seems like an organic like um, wildlife experience, but I don't know. I get I get spoiled here, you know, because like you can I can literally just walk to the beach or even to a couple of piers here and see marine mammals. You know, they're just hanging out. So I don't know. Maybe you move to that kind of model instead. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's that's interesting. It's, it's good news. We we have like interesting and good news this week, aside from the 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 dude at uh, ULA. So we're we're all good. <laughs> So we've all seen um, the sort of rise of genetic testing, right? You've got like 23andMe. You've got all of these competitors coming onto the market. You've you've got a lot of 
stuff going on in the space, right? And one of the arguments that they've been making is that, you know, once you have your own personal genetic patient information, you're going to make better decisions for yourself. Mm-hmm. Well. <laughs> is there is, is so, there a hole, a hole in that argument, perhaps? <laughs> uh, you're never going to guess. People mm-hmm. totally don't do, don't change their behavior at all. Um, <laughs> really? So there's, this was a yeah, shocking, I know. No, like, I mean, People don't like to change their behavior. Who would have guessed? Um, but so it turns out that this is, this is um, what's called a meta-analysis. And it's when you take a bunch of other studies and you pool them all together and analyze them that way. Uh, because that way you sort of reduce the likelihood of there being errors in your data. Because you're pulling from so many discrete studies and analyzing what their results were. Mm-hmm. So this is 18 studies that followed people after they had received the results of their genetic tests. Here are some things they did not do as as a result of the tests. They did not eat differently. They did not exercise more. They did not stop smoking. They did not wear more sunscreen. They did not drink less booze. No significant behavioral effects for genetic testing were found at all. I wonder if it is it something like... You do, you get your genetic testing and you're like, cool, I did my healthy thing for myself. And then like, you don't follow up. You're like, well, I'm, I'm informed. And so therefore automatically healthier. <laughs> like, It's information without action. Yeah, I think that might be part of it. Um, I think part of it too is that it's hard to assess as a lay person, your genetic risks. Um, so for instance, most of the really common variants that a lot of people carry don't confer a lot more risk, you know? Sure. So, like, if your risk of lung cancer goes up, you know, 5% relative to the population, I don't know that that's necessarily going to be the sort of thing where you're like, yes, I should definitely stop smoking now. You're like, ah, it's 5%. It's fine. That's nothing. That's not even doubling my risk, right. you know? So I wonder if that plays a role too. But I, I, I yeah. I mean, they, they don't. The, knowing the the results of these tests didn't change things for the negative either. Nobody got depressed or got had anxiety. So right. <laughs> that's good. Um, but yeah, and you know, you think about it. Often when we discuss genetic testing, it's discussed with specific gene tests um, like BRCA, um, the breast cancer gene. And the reason why you get results, why why people do things following getting their BRCA results is because they're already a motivated patient population, right? Like right. the reason you're you're being pulled aside um, for this kind of test, which wasn't done in the whole genome analyses until recently because of a copy or a patent dispute. Um, Myriad Genetics had a patent uh, that the Supreme Court invalidated on that particular gene. But so what would happen is that you, the people who were getting those tests were the people who were already motivated to do something. They were the people who were like, well, I just watched my mom die breast cancer. My sister's got ovarian cancer. And maybe I should just see if I'm carrying this gene. And so they're they're the people who are informed and who are prepared to act on this information. Whereas I think with um, the more general kinds of genetic information, it's just like so much it's overwhelming. Yeah. <laughs> and you have, you're not queued up to act on it because you're not, you know, getting the test in response to some sort of medical fear, right? Like you're just you would just want to see what's yeah. up. Have you ever gotten any of these done, like 23andMe and, and stuff? No, I haven't. And I'll tell you why. Um, <laughs> because I am nervous about how well we are able to maintain genetic privacy. Oh, uh, interesting. I hadn't even, yeah. that had not even occurred to me. But because it on. turns out, like, you know, you can't really fully 
um, anonymize a lot of this data. And there have been a couple of studies that have been published that show that it's possible to re-identify people. And that was enough to totally freak me out. So <laughs> That's crazy. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Then you think about like this being marketed as like just a normal thing that everybody should do, like getting a flu shot or something. And yeah. Right. And like the, a lot of these companies' business models, including like 23andMe and Sure Genomics, uh, involve, you know, sort of anonymizing the data and then selling it to pharmaceutical companies to work with. So that's part of how they're making their money. And that's a very normal and standard thing in the field. But like, I would like to be paid if you're going to use my genetic data to build a new drug, Pfizer. Like, just pay me. Cut, oh, me, a, sure. cut me a check. I'm sure that they, <laughs> they have it somewhere in the budget. They could do that. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah. So those are sort of the motivating factors behind not getting it. I think if I do, if I were to get genetic testing done, um, I would be more trusting of an academic lab. Yeah. Hmm. Well, that's, I mean, I, I, I've, I've know people who have gotten... Um, the burger test before and that's like that seems like specific and practical that seems like a and you know obviously you are very in a very good position if you can one get the test and then you know do something about it um right but uh but still you know no harm if you can uh but yeah it seems the rest of it seems kind of like like uh the health version of a personality quiz like it's like, tell me some stuff about me, and then I'm going to do nothing about it. <laughs> right. Well, I mean, like, it's some of it, too, is like, it's going to tell you the color of your hair. And it's like, I have a mirror. <laughs> <laughs> That's true. I, I know what color my hair is. <laughs> um, well, I guess uh, I guess we could talk a little bit about South By, because I've yeah. been here. You know, last week was the first day I was here. I'd just gotten in, and now I've been here a week. And guess what? Still got three more days here. <laughs> So, it is your brand ends. activated? How activated is oh, your brand? Oh, my brand is like no. My brand is um, my brand has involved a lot of bike trips out to um a health food store, <laughs> and being very like <laughs> off the like I am not. I have actually stayed away from I think a lot of that stuff. I was I was I was telling my boyfriend who was out here for a few days like. I feel like last year it was my first time I went to South by and you know it's just like it's insane it's this dystopian corporate nightmare for especially during the um, interactive half and it was so alarming to me and so uh, crazy feeling that I was like okay I need to like do all of it I need to like completely ingest it so that I can have like antibodies for it I just need to know it fully (laughs) And um, I feel like I did that last year. I feel like I, I mean, I went to like every single thing I could possibly go to every brand of activation. So this year I came in and I was like, I just want to like block it all out. I want to just stay as, as far away from the noise as possible. So, and you know, even still, even trying to stay pretty focused on getting out to see films and talking to interesting people and stuff, uh, it is, it is such a huge thing i feel like i I don't know how much (laughs) more it can continue on this trajectory i'm I'm talking about like all of south by because it's just it's unmanageable as as a as a person in the media i think as a as a as a lay person just coming to check out stuff i mean it's just i don't i don't know how i would know where to begin if i was just out to like if i was like an austin resident who came out to like see some movies or something i guess like I don't know. I mean, and the reason that I, I say that is, like, I've seen a couple of really good films out here, and I had I, I was not pointed to them by anything. 
Like, I, my favorite thing that I saw here that I wrote about this past week, um, this documentary called Dead Slow Ahead, I went into randomly. Like, I wanted to sit down in a theater. <laughs> so I just, like, <laughs> walked by the Alamo Ritz, and that was the next thing it was on. So we, she, so we went in and we watched it, and we're just, like, blown away by this film. Um, and, you know, I, there's, there's no... There's so much stuff, and the stuff that is the biggest and already has distribution, I'm talking about like on the film side, but you know, there's there's the equivalent within interactive and music as well. I mean, like, you know, they showed the work in progress screening of Keanu, the, the Key and Peele movie, which I went to. Um, I only stayed for an hour because it started at like one in the morning and I was like dying. But um, I mean, it was, it was funny. It was great. But like that stuff is the stuff you see everybody out there for and like lined up for. And most of the other screenings I've been to, it's like like 15 people in the theater. Like it's not and it's just it, there's so much stuff. And it's like, how could how could, I, I'm imagining like what well, a lot of the panels and stuff are like for interactive, you know, smaller ones that aren't big name panels. And it's like, how, yeah, how would you possibly get a bunch of people to come into this thing when there are literally 100 other things happening at the same time? I feel like this is the problem of like TV and the internet writ large, right? Mm -hmm. Cause like I am so routinely just overwhelmed yeah. by all of the shows people tell me to watch that I wind up just sticking to RuPaul's Drag Race and Game <laughs> of Thrones. Yeah, totally. You know, like I'm just like, oh yes, I am missing the 40 most important shows on television right now. I don't know what to do about it. But it's okay, it just has to be okay. You have to come to peace with it. Cause it's like, well, I guess that's not my path in this world. <laughs> Um, to see all of the shows. Um, some so it's some weird to hear is. you talking about like a embodied version of that. Oh, like, totally, yeah. And it just it just feels like I, I you know I don't know what the 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 mission statement of South by is really <laughs> anymore. I mean, and and I don't even feel like oh they should break off like all the, the the three parts and have them be independent things because a lot of times the stuff that crosses over between film and music and interactive and music and all this stuff like that's actually really interesting and that's like a huge for me like being the entertainment editor at a tech site like that's that's great that's very very interesting to me and like I had an interview with um an artist um Dawn Richard uh she's uh, do you know about her she's yeah I love her yeah she's like done some really weird cool pop yeah she okay I had like I had an incredible interview with her this morning but like it you know, she is an example of a person who's working as a, I, I guess as a pop musician, but she's fully independent. Like she doesn't have a label or anything like that. She self-releases and, um, and has just a really amazing perspective on like how to go about releasing stuff and making stuff as an independent, but like very pop and very like brand oriented artist. Um, and that was really cool. That was really cool to talk to her. And I, I mean, I love her music too, so it was great. Um, and so that, you know, that's like, okay, I, I get why. Th that's the kind of thing that you feel like can kind of only happen at South By, where people are kind of all in the soup together and all kind of thinking about these three sort of buckets all together as one thing. Um, but then sometimes it's just like, I don't know, like, what do we really need to have like, like a serious, like novel thick catalog of panels that are happening this week like what are they all useful or interesting I don't know but um 
But, uh, yeah, I mean, I, I, I guess I just wanted to go through some of the stuff I saw so far. Um, music started yesterday, and I have not actually made it out to any shows because it requires um, a, uh, a time schedule, a sleep schedule that I am not yet on. Um, but I, so I saw, Dead Slow Head, um, I mean, you can read my review of it. It's seriously, it's got to be one of my favorite films I've seen, like, not just here and not just this year but maybe like the past five years like I've not I've not seen a film that's been that like fully (laughs) I don't know just like life-changing it felt very life-changing I compared it to 2001 in the um the review but it's a documentary about um like a, a, a shipping freighter uh that just is making its journey across the Atlantic I think it's not clear in the film, but um, I read an interview where he said it was going from Odessa to uh, New Orleans, this freighter. And it's it's crewed by, it's like a, it feels like a very small crew, all Filipino, and just like working on this giant kind of spaceship, essentially. It, it's, it's shot and the sound is designed in such a way that it really does feel like like an art film, like a, a science fiction art film. Um, but it's all real. It all happened. And like, there's this insane disaster that happens in the middle of it. That's just like, it's just completely, it's a mind blowing experience. And I don't like, it, that feels like a cliche, but um, I don't, I can't really think of many other ways to describe it. And I wish I knew where it was going, like what other festivals it was going to be at, or if it was getting any kind of distribution, but um I haven't been able to see anything yet, but I also hadn't like read very much about it. So it felt kind of cool to just find something that had been relatively uncovered here. Well, that was that was one of the things that I really liked about South by when I was there a few years back was like you would I would just post up at a bar. Yeah. And like wait for the music to come through. And I would. And like that was a really, really great way to discover artists. But, you know, yeah, I mean, (laughs) there's something like a little random left to it. Yeah. And there's um. I, I mean, I, I, people talk about how that doesn't really happen with music anymore here, but I, I mean, I think it's impossible to say that because there's so much, like I'm saying, it's like the, it's the good half of there being so much. Like, yes, like all of the stuff that's heavily marketed, like whoever's at Fader Ford or whoever's at, you know, all these different sponsored day parties, like you've heard of them before, you know, I mean, especially if you are a music nerd, you've heard of them before. And like, so yes, you can go out to this party and see somebody whose music you already know you like. And that's cool, that's fine. That's like more like a traditional festival experience. But yeah, the the I, I've totally done the same thing. I've just been in a bar like out in on East 6th or whatever, like, you know, away from the, the like kind of central hub madness of the festival and just seen like some local band that's amazing. And like, you know, a lot of times, <laughs> A lot of times you don't end up following up on it, but it still like feels like a very genuine experience that you could only have here. So I'm looking forward to getting more of that this week as as music progresses. But um, well, you know, as as we're talking about music, I'm just going to um, s- steer us into a transition mm-hmm. uh, because we have a guest uh, who I am very excited to be speaking to. Um, and we're going to be talking about why music sounds good and what's happening in your brain when music sounds good. So I'm very you know, excited as for this conversation. <laughs> <laughs> as you're as you're listening to bands at South by, you can think to yourself, "Ah, the dopamine has come. I I'm really feeling this song." <laughs> <laughs> cool. 
So I have here Valerie Salampour. Um, and, and Valerie, do you want to tell us what your title is? What's the best way to cite it? Uh, I'm a neuroscientist at the Rotman Research Institute at Baycrest Center. All right. Um, and, you know, the reason I'm con- I contacted you was this uh, article that you published um, about five years ago uh, about um, dopamine release during the experience of, you know, peak emotion while listening to music. And I just wanted to back up a little bit from that paper before we, uh, we talk about it um, and ask you what led to that research? What, what interested you about music? Uh, that's actually a pretty interesting story. I, I, I was trying to figure out what to do with my life and I was having a low moment. So I decided to just go out for a drive and I started listening to some music. And all of a sudden I experienced um, this really intense burst of emotion. It was really, really intense to the point where I actually had to pull over to the side of the street. And uh, not because I could drive, but just because I wanted to sit there and really enjoy it. And I thought, this is incredible. Just a minute ago, I was I was really feeling really down. And now all of a sudden, I'm, I'm so elated. <laughs> what, what's happened? Uh, how, how could this have happened? And well, do, you thought, know, do you remember what you were listening to? Um, it was actually uh, um, a piece by Brahms. Um, uh, I can't remember right now, but it was a piece by Brahms. Uh-huh. And, uh, it was just incredible what it did to me. So I thought, well, maybe this is what I should do. This is... I should try to figure out what exactly happened just now and what happened in my brain. And uh, immediately, as soon as I got home, I Googled music in the brain and that took me to Montreal. <laughs> and started a series of experiments and now I can tell you exactly what happened. All right. Well, so tell me what happened then when you like, put me in the let's let's put ourselves in like slow motion in the car. We're observing it, you know, from from the future. Right. So uh, when the, when the Brahms first starts to play, what happens in your brain? So what seems to be happening, um, and we actually examined this through a number of studies uh, uh, subsequent to the one that you have cited, and uh, of course other people have done similar research as well, and what we're finding is that when you're listening to music, it targets so many different regions of the brain, and a big component of that will be the emotion regions. So um, we we sort of tap into the auditory cortices of the brain, and that taps into the emotion centers and the reward and pleasure centers, and those are tightly linked with the memory centers. And music is just so incredibly effective at lighting up all of those areas. And uh, what's interesting is that um, this this dopaminergic system that we found that releases dopamine in response to music is really it's it's uh, phylogenetically ancient, and um, it's really evolved to reinforce highly adaptive behaviors things like eating and sex, and we share this with other mammals as well. So we're, we're piggybacking on something, essentially, when we listen to music. Like all of the hardware is already in our brains and, and possibly being used for something else, <laughs> or maybe uh, is being used for other things. But, um, but, but music seems to tap into the same sorts of, of grooves in our brain. Is that, a, is that a fair way of thinking about it? Uh, that is definitely a common viewpoint um, at this point. That's definitely one theory. It seems like... Uh, it's uh, perhaps these systems are there for um, language, perhaps they're there for um, various types of reward and pleasure or being able to um, obtain pleasure from aesthetic aesthetic experiences. And that's what we're finding, which is in, in uh, we're finding that in and this was through subsequent studies in humans, it seems like the cognitive regions of the brain are tightly interconnected with uh, with some of the reward centers and these are the same regions that would be active when we're listening to music. So music is almost like a like a cognitive 
pleasure, a cognitive mm. exercise that becomes pleasurable. Oh, that's interesting. Um, I wonder if that has anything to do with the way that the patterns play a role in music, because obviously, you know, you have your bar where you've got a certain number of beats per bar, and then you have a certain number of tones in whatever scale you're working in. Um, and so you, you can start to sort of assemble patterns and sort of know what to expect. And part of the fun of listening to music is either having your expectations fulfilled or or played with, <laughs> essentially, by somebody who is a little bit manipulating you by thinking, oh, yeah, you think you know where the song is going, but you don't. You actually hit it right on. <laughs> that's, <laughs> that's precisely what's happening. And we're finding that um, the parts of the brain that are involved in making predictions and uh, potentially having them fulfilled um, are the regions that are showing activity. And they're also integrating with the parts of our cerebral cortex that store all of the music information that we've heard in the past. So from the time that we're born, all the sounds that we're exposed to, all the music, the different types of music, the different genres that we listen to, the different connections that we might have with them, all of these get stored in the brain. And we're finding that um, the parts of the brain that are responsible for forming predictions and determining whether or not you're going to be pleasantly surprised or <laughs> or it's it's... Uh, going to be, end up being a boring piece for you. Um, those are the regions that show uh, connectivity with these uh, storage music storage centers, if you will. Yeah, I, I, that's that's one of the things that's super fascinating to me. Actually, is the role that pattern recognition plays. It's almost there's like a it's like a part of your brain that's like still the baby that gets really excited when you play peekaboo. <laughs> you know, uh, you're like, oh my gosh, what's going to happen next? Um, yeah, it's, it's interesting that you're bringing that up because um, with toddlers, we find uh, music that has very simple patterns, very pleasing for them because um, it's still pretty straightforward. And uh, for them, it's it's exciting to be able to make a prediction and then have it. Um, if, if you have absolutely no idea where the music is going, it might not be that exciting. But if you can make a prediction based on those patterns, then it can be a lot more exciting, especially if there are a few surprises along the way. Um, improv or jazz is a really good example of that, how you can be a little bit surprised each time. And even live performances um, can be like that, where you 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 can you can sort of know where the music is going because it's somewhat familiar, but it's not entirely familiar because in those cases it would just be boring. Right. Yeah, that's one of, that's part of the fun of a live show is listening to the the way that the song gets adapted to be done live or like, you know, if it's something the musician has been playing for a couple of years, often they'll just revamp their arrangement entirely and it takes you a second to realize what you're listening to. Yeah, and that can really be key into making that piece of music really pleasurable and addictive in a way because uh and of course a lot of uh composers and musicians um a lot of them know this and what they'll do is take some familiar elements and incorporate those into the new music that they're composing because uh, then you can start getting having people make predictions because if they have if they don't recognize the patterns if they can't make any predictions then it just sounds like uh, it, it sounds like just noise right. <laughs> it's <not> exciting <laughs> I mean, this 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 is giving me a whole new perspective on when my dad would tell me to turn down the noise when I was a teenager. <laughs> like, probably it did just sound like noise to him. <laughs> yeah, that's that's pretty much right on. <laughs> so let me ask you this: um, how, how much interplay is there between your work and the music community? I mean, are there do you occasionally get musicians who call you up like, "Hey, do you have any suggestions?" Or is this something that's that sort of its own thing where you're exploring as much as you can sort of the infrastructure of music in the brain. Oh, uh, we actually have um, musicians emailing us on a daily basis. <laughs> <laughs> 
Um, and the reason for that, a large reason for that is because uh, one uh, big line of interest for us is uh, exploring intensely pleasurable music that gives people chills, for example. And um, this is a really, really fascinating topic for so many people. I've had so many emails about this already <laughs> where um, people want to know why they're experiencing these physiological sensations by just listening to music. And uh, this has always been really fascinating. And what we're looking into is, first of all, wh uh, what makes it specific for different people? And second of all, um, why do some people find the same piece of music pleasurable? So I'll give you an example. When we did a study on this, um, the, the piece of music that was uh, largely selected to be chill-inducing, the, the, the number one piece essentially was Barber's Adagio for Strings. Oh, yeah, and, uh, that'll that, do it. <laughs> and then we looked in the different genres. We looked in uh, um, dance music or, I guess, uh, trance music. And um, what we found was the piece of music there that was most popular was actually Tiesto's version of Barbara's Adagio for Strings. <laughs> <laughs> that's amazing. So it seems like there's definitely something in that piece that's doing it. And uh, so composers wanted a list of all this music so they can look at what's common and what's giving people those chills. Oh, that's incredible. So yeah, right? Because that's a that's the thing that's weird about it is that you're having this your goosebumps basically on your arm just from listening to something. Uh, I've never been able to figure out what that is or like what causes it because you know it could uh, for me, I um I saw Einstein on the beach a few years ago, uh, the Philip Glass opera. And there are a couple of sections in there. And it wasn't just the music, because obviously there's, you know, it's a, it was a stage production, so there, were, there was dancing too. But it was just compelling. And there, it wasn't like there were words, you know? It wasn't like there was any kind of that sort of direct emotional content. And yet, you know, you have this incredible emotional experience. And what's amazing about that is that, as you mentioned before, it's all about the patterns in the music and how your expectations are being um, manipulated or played with in a way. In a yeah. uh, but it's all about, it's really, like I mentioned, a cognitive exercise where your brain is recognizing these patterns based on all of the auditory information you've stored in the past and um, how you perceive those. And now you're forming expectations about what will happen in the music. And of course, this isn't just happening on in, in on one dimension. It's, it's very multidimensional depending on how many different levels of expectations are happening in the music on a sort of um, second by second basis versus sort of a grander theme of the piece of music that you're listening to. And on all these different dimensions, your expectations are being manipulated. And this really integrates the high order areas of the brain that are involved in sort of advanced and complex uh, thinking and pattern recognizing with sort of the more central core regions of the brain that are involved in pleasure and reward and linking those together very tightly and being able to produce these intense physiological responses. Let me ask you a slightly different question. Um, obviously, that you you know you can produce these intense res responses, but the, another thing that happens, at least for me, when I listen to music, is sometimes if I listen to a piece um, where I've had something very memorable happen while listening to the piece, um, or a very memorably pleasant experience, often I'll re-experience it when I re-listen. Do we have any idea why that happens? Um, I know that certain kinds of of senses are tied to memory, but I, I'm extremely curious about how all this all works. 
This is really fascinating because if you ask someone to recall a memory from their past, um, maybe uh, if, you, if you ask them to uh, give you some details about prom or think about prom, <laughs> um, they might just be able to tell you um, a few details. But then if you play some music that they heard that evening or was very significant for them that evening, all of a sudden they actually relive and re-experience all of those emotions, as you were saying. And a lot of studies have uh, looked into this uh, very fascinating and <laughs> interesting uh, phenomenon. Um, so it, the, the the reason is really because the regions of the brain that um, get activated when you're listening to music largely involve the emotion and memory centers, and they're very interconnected. Mm. So if you can reactivate those memories, what you're essentially doing is reactivating the emotion centers in the brain. And that's why you re-experience those feelings. That's wonderful. <laughs> there's, a, there's one song that I, um, it's by Dandy Warhol, it's called Sleep, and I experienced it driving through the desert in the middle of college, uh, just in middle of nowhere, California, with the sun coming up. It was one of the most beautiful sunrises I've ever seen, and I just re-experience that every time I hear that song. <laughs> um, I guess one of the next things that I wanted to, to talk with you a little bit about is um, in terms of thinking about um, commercial and pop music, uh, which I think um, a lot of people experience, if not, you know, by deliberately putting it on, by hearing their kids put it on or um, just listening to the radio or having the TV on. Um, is it possible if you're if you notice that there's a trend in pop you don't like to to train yourself to appreciate it? Is that the logical outcome of this kind of pattern recognition? Well, that's actually a very interesting question as well, because pattern recognition is only interesting to the point where it's not boring. So there, there are two things that need to be met. One is that you, your, your brain has to be able to pick up on the pattern. So it has to be either familiar enough or simple enough that your brain can complete it in some way, at least. Um, you have to have some expectation. But at the same time, if it's too predictable, then it's not really as exciting. So the first time that you hear a piece of music, you might not like it as much as the second or third time, um, especially if it's not familiar at all. But if it's from a band that you're familiar with, or if you've maybe heard it once or twice before, then your brain already start, starts to pick up on those subtle nuances and be able to make some predictions. So then that does become exciting. Now, if it's too predictable, then those those regions don't really those reward regions don't really get targeted. So, um, so you, you you would just be bored with a piece of music, and this often happens with a lot of popular music because it's simple enough that your brain can quickly tune in and figure out the patterns. But at the same time, because it's so simple, it goes out of fashion quickly as well. Um, it can't keep us entertained on on so many different levels. Like classical music might be able to, or um, jazz music, of course, for different reasons. Classical music might have just so many different dimensions that there's so many different elements that may still surprise you. And with jazz, of course, by nature, um, a lot of the improv is is supposed to be surprising. And you're sort of forming some predictions because you're um, familiar with that style or with that piece uh, to, to a certain extent. And then um, there are surprises coming up along the way. And essentially, that's what leads to a lot of the pleasure that we experience. So let me ask you a, a slightly personal question. What kinds of music do you listen to? Uh, what what music shapes the music researcher? <laughs> well, that's really changed over the years, uh, mostly because of the research that I've been doing. I've been getting access to all of this amazing music. <laughs> Seems I like a remember. nice bonus. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, I was listening to um, the stimuli that we had selected for our um, experiments that was uh, with the chills um, 
And that was really interesting because I had to essentially sit in the library for five to six hours and just listen to every single piece to make sure it was suitable for our experiment. And uh, I just kept getting chills <laughs> over, and over <laughs> as I was listening. So that was uh, that was pretty incredible. Um, so really a, a broad range. <laughs> uh, but uh, for me, it's all really personal. And to the extent that it brings back memories, I, I really like music that brings back memories. And a lot of these, of course, will now be memories of experiments. <laughs> yeah, that 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 completely makes sense. So what what's what does going forward look like for you? I mean, what sorts of experiments do you have planned for the next year or two? What kinds of things should we be watching for? Uh, so the main thing that we're looking at now is understanding individual differences and um, being able to predict individual differences. So we're trying to see uh, we have an idea of how the, the how brain processes music and how we start to find new music that we haven't heard before pleasurable, but now we want to know how that's different for different people. And based on the music that you've heard in the past, based on um, your current preferences, for example, or even based on your mood, how can we tell what types of music you want to listen to? It seems like uh, we're moving a lot into personalization of music now. Yeah, certainly with iTunes and Spotify, you know, that seems like it's very of the moment in any variety of ways, the personalization of music. Exactly. And we can do this um, in a number of ways. We can do it sort of behaviorally by understanding people's um, preferences in the past and present, or we can do it, we can look at physiological responses, um, such as their heart rate, respiration at any given time, or we can look at brain activity. Um, there, there are lots of options. And with, with the technology more, moving more and more into portable streams, then it becomes easier to do that sort of on the spot. Yeah. Oh, that's incredible. Well, let me, let me ask you this. Is there anything I should be asking you that I'm not or anything you feel I've missed? Uh, one interesting topic that always comes up is why is sad music pleasurable? Um, because in a way, you don't really want to feel sad <laughs> when you're listening right. <laughs> or ever, really. And um, that's always been an interesting topic uh, that um, researchers have tried to explore. And uh, I, I personally find that really interesting as well, because in real life, we don't really like feeling sad, but then music provides a medium through which we can experience this. Because in real life, if something if we're feeling sad, that means something bad has happened <laughs> and that may have consequences for us. But when we experience that emotion in music, it's, it's completely different. It's almost cathartic. We can really get a, a, a release of some sort by being able to experience the intensity of that emotion without the consequences. Oh, wow. So, yeah, yeah. This has always been a really interesting topic to me. So it's like, it's like, um, it's like the roller coaster in danger almost, right? Like you can experience the danger on the roller coaster without actually being in danger. And so you just sort of are thrilled. And, and in music, you can experience the sadness without necessarily having had something happen to cause the sadness. And so you're just feeling the feeling. Yeah, I think that's a really good analogy because in everyday life, it's not the case that we're constantly getting um, variations in our arousal. Most most people lead, um, lead pretty normal lives that uh, don't have that much arousal um, or at least that much variation. But uh, with with outside things, with aesthetic things especially that allow you to experience these intense um, emotions and arousal, then you can sort of step out of that normal zone and feel them without consequences. All right. Well, I want to thank you so much for taking the time to speak with me. This has been incredible and very enlightening. Great. It was very nice talking to you. Thank you very much. 
Well, that was Valerie Salampour, uh, a neuroscientist who studies, among other things, uh, the effects of music on the brain. It, it was interesting. I, um, you know, I obviously the magic of recording. I've still not heard that interview, but um, I was just thinking about one thing that I saw here. <laughs> I saw here at um, at South by, which was like a very interesting, more interesting. Um, I think from like a, 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 a kind of hypothetical point of view, but um, this piece of technology called Here that lets people. Um, uh, it's a pair of earbuds where you can adjust the EQ at a concert live in your in your ear. Um, well, that's amazing. To like tweak the sound, and I was just thinking about that because I was like, I was like, yeah, a lot of times it has to do with like the bass and the frequency and like you know these different vibrations in your head. But like the idea to be able to adjust it yourself almost feels like cheating. But that's my uh, that's my luddite point of view about that. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, this has been Verge ESP. We're looking forward to the technology that lets us go to concerts and listen to the music beautifully without going deaf. Mm. Uh, <laughs> I'd rather and, go uh, deaf. You, sh- <laughs> <laughs> uh, you should subscribe on iTunes if you have not subscribed already. And also check out our SoundCloud if that's more to your preference. Either way, you should definitely leave a five-star review because we're amazing. Leave five stars and then give us all the complaints and suggestions you want. But we appreciate the feedback on the list. Mostly. We mostly appreciate the feedback. Yes. (laughs) Uh, Well, thanks, everybody, for listening. um, And we will see you back here next week. Bye. Bye.